please open in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we've given you kids, or when you got off the back table, you can find that on page 830. This morning, we, I titled the message, Are You Ready? And I don't know about you, but that question has a, a helpful effect on my own productivity. Am I ready? But it's a question that can have both kind of positive and maybe more ominous connotations. You know, are you ready for vacation? Something we get excited about, right? You know, are you ready for surgery? Less so. But are you ready is an important question, and whatever you're looking forward to, are you you're, you're preparing for, tends to have a, a very large uh, view in your mind space, right? It takes up a lot of a lot of real estate in your brain, and so what you're ready for, what you're thinking about, may be distracting you from other things that you have to get done while you're you're thinking about this thing you're getting ready for. Today, that this idea of getting ready for something applies to both of the parables that Jesus is going to teach us from Matthew 25. The, the first parable is about some people who are getting ready for the coming of a bridegroom. They're getting ready for going to a wedding party, and the, the kind of decisive event is when that party starts is when this bridegroom comes. So it's not like the weddings maybe we're used to going to, where you're told to show, show up at the church at you know, noon or two. It's a kind of thing where they, they go out and wait by the road for the, the bridegroom to come, and when the bridegroom shows up, they're going to go into the feast. That's the kind of waiting that we would get excited about. You know, everyone out in town is, is there. They're ready. They're looking forward to joining in this big party, a wedding feast, right? The other kind of, of getting ready may be a little more ominous. It's the kind of getting ready that you might do when you've been given a very important project at work. Maybe it's been a, a months or a years long project and it's coming to completion. And at the end of that project, you've got to meet with a, a high level executive in your firm to go over what you've done. Are you ready? Are you ready for that meeting? Now in this story that we're looking at in the second story, this is not a completely ominous picture because this this executive, this boss, this king that's coming is a, is a good master. He's the kind of master who's resourced you with everything you needed to complete the project. But the question remains, are you ready? The passage we're looking at is part of this great discourse that Jesus gives in Matthew 24 and 25 about what Jesus' kingdom will be like when he finally comes. So we're looking here at this kind of second half of this discourse, uh, the beginning of the second half in verses 1 through 30. Last week, Pastor John helped us to see that as we look forward to Christ's coming, as we as Christ's people anticipate him coming back, we should expect that his coming will be delayed. So it's going to take longer than we expected for him to come back. And in that delay, in that kind of waiting period, we're going to expect trouble and persecutions as God's people. And today, Jesus kind of takes that idea and he expands on it in these two parables. So these two parables are telling us how to live while we live through that delay. How to get ready as we wait for Christ's coming. 
And we're going to look at three ways to get ready for Christ's coming. First, we get ready for Christ's coming by trusting in Christ. Trust in Christ. Second, get ready for Christ's coming by obeying your master. Obey your master. And third, get ready for Christ's coming by risking your life. Risk your life. So with that, let's read the first parable, verses 1 through 13 of Matthew 25, and look how Jesus tells us to get ready for his coming by trusting in him. Listen to God's word from Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will, be, there, since there will not be enough for us and for you, Go rather to the, de to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is God's word. Jesus starts this parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven will be like. And so he's directing our thoughts with this will be to the future, to the time when he returns. The most basic point of both these parables is that there will be a coming of the Lord, and that on that day there will be a division, a division between the wise and the foolish, and then later we'll see a division between those who are faithful and those who are not. We could kind of use this overarching word ready. Those who are ready and those who are not. Jesus is coming and there will be a division. And we don't know when that coming will be. Here in the parable we see this word virgins repeated over and over again. And this is just a way to refer to a young unmarried woman in this culture. And so that's what we refer to them as. These ten young women who are excited to be taking part in a wedding in their village. That's the sort of setting of the parable. Again, the main event of the wedding is the party that's happening at the bridegroom's house, and it, it's kicked off when the bridegroom comes. So they're going out so they can participate in this wedding procession and then enjoy the wedding feast. The New Testament scholar D.A. Carson said that everyone in the procession was expected to carry his or her own torch, and that those without a torch would be assumed to be party crashers or maybe even bandits who were there to disrupt the wedding. So the young women go out with their lamps. That's kind of their wedding invitation in a sense. They're key to get in, and they're ready to take part in the party. The lamps they were using were probably bundles of cloth on the end of a, a carrying stick, and they would need oil to oil those cloths so they would stay lit. So another New Testament scholar, R.T. France, says that a, a torch without a jar of oil was as useless as a modern flashlight without a battery. They needed the oil to make this work. 
Now, this parable of Jesus is one of his easier ones in some ways to understand. He makes it pretty obvious who the kind of good guys or good gals and bad gals are, right? He tells us there are five of the young women who are wise, in verse 2, and there are five who were foolish. And then he tells us in verse 3 that, or verses 3 and 4, that what made the five young women wise is that they prepared for the eventuality of a delay by bringing oil for their lamps. And then in verse 10, we see that those who are ready, who were ready, those were the ones who got to go into the feast. So we see the, the wise are prepared and ready for the bridegroom's coming. The foolish young women didn't prepare. Then at midnight, when the bridegroom finally came, they were forced to leave their place in order to find oil, and then they weren't welcomed in to the feast. Let's read the ending of the parable one more time just to notice what makes someone ready. So again, while they were going to buy these foolish young women, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the feast, the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now, the first time through the parable on the surface, it, it appears to be the, the oil that's decisive. Remembering to bring the oil is what makes one ready. But this last statement of the bridegroom, where he shuts the foolish young women out, tells us that there's something more going on here. He says, I do not know you. And he, he adds some weight to these words by saying, truly, I say to you. Right? He has a buildup. I do not know you. Now, if, if we kind of imagine this to be a small Palestinian village, the groom isn't claiming that he's never seen these young women before. But this statement is saying that what matters to your admittance to the feast is your relationship to the bridegroom. He says he doesn't know them, and that's why they can't come in. What this helps us see is that the issue is not primarily the oil and the lamps. The issue is that the young women, the foolish young women, have no real relationship to the bridegroom. He doesn't know them. They want to take part in the festivities, but they have no devotion to this bridegroom. And that's why they didn't prepare for his coming. See, their failure to prepare is a symptom of a much deeper problem. Carson explains it. Uh, he explains the bridegroom's refusal to admit the foolish young women like this. He says, it's not a callous rejection of their lifelong desire to enter the kingdom. Far from it. It is the rejection of those who, despite appearances, never made a preparation for the coming of the kingdom. Right? These young women were only there for the cake. They had no affection, no devotion to the bridegroom. In the kingdom of heaven, there will be a final separation between the wise and the foolish. That separation is going to be between those who are devoted to the king, those who love him, and those who are not. Between those who are ready and those who are not. So what does it mean to be devoted to Christ? How do we get ready for Christ to come? Well, Jesus has taught us about this throughout Matthew. He's been answering this question for us over and over again. One way we can see what it means to be devoted to Christ is to look back to chapter 16, when Jesus pronounced Peter blessed 
after Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Some, that kind of confession only comes through the blessed work of the Father revealing to Peter. So we, we could see to be devoted to Jesus means to confess Jesus as God and Savior. And this echoes all the way back to chapter 1 when the angel pronounced to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. To be devoted to Jesus means to confess him as your God and your Savior. Two times in Matthew, we see Gentiles showing us what devotion to Jesus means. So the centurion in chapter 8 professes his great faith in Christ's power to heal simply with his word. And the Canaanite woman in chapter 15, she professed her trust that there was spiritual food for Gentiles at Christ's table. Remember her words? Even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. She believed that Christ had something for her, spiritual food for her. So here's another take on devotion to Christ. Devotion to Christ means you, you trust in his power to save. You trust in his goodness to provide. Do you trust in Christ's power and goodness? Are you devoted to him? In chapter 13, Jesus taught this famous parable about the four soils and the, the sower. And he told us that the good soil are those who hear Christ's word and believe it and who bear fruit. So devotion to Christ means listening to the word of Christ, the gospel promises of Christ, and trusting him. In chapter 5 of Matthew, the Beatitudes, they describe devotion to Christ in terms of relying on Christ for mercy and of, of being mournful of our spiritual bankruptcy and of hungering and thirsting for Christ's righteousness, for, for seeking satisfaction for our souls in Christ. We get ready. We prepare for Christ coming by repenting of our sin and resting on the mercy of God in Christ. This is the foundational thing that makes one ready, that distinguishes the wise from the foolish. To be prepared for Christ's coming means to believe in Christ. Do you trust him for salvation? Are you trusting in him as your God and Savior? To believe in Christ and then to continue believing while you wait for his coming. Without faith, without faith in Christ, we're like those foolish, unprepared young women. They wanted to go into the wedding celebration, but they didn't have any true regard for the bridegroom. No true devotion for him. No love for him. They wanted God's blessing apart from any kind of dependence on Christ or trust in Christ or submission to Christ. We have to be honest that this attitude of wanting blessings from God without any love for God is, is pretty familiar to us. Many of us, if you hear the, the offer of salvation, yeah, I want to be saved, but I don't really want to have to follow the Savior. I don't want to humbly confess that I deserve wrath from God. I don't want to have to be reliant on the righteousness of this crucified Savior. We want the blessings of salvation, but we don't really want to trust in Christ. It's easy to get excited about Jesus, but excitement about Jesus doesn't carry us through for a lifetime. 
Kids, if you're, you're here and you've grown up in a, a Christian home with Christian parents, you might be tempted to think like this. You might be th- tempted to think that, you know, maybe saying you're a Christian, will it'll get your parents' approval. They'll be happy if you profess faith. Or maybe you might find that Christian friends are the ones you just like hanging out with the most. You go off to college and you join the Christian groups because they just are kind of people like you and you can kind of have fun with them in a safe way, perhaps. But those motivations will not serve you in the long term. So this parable invites you to think about what is faith really? What, what is genuine faith? What kind of faith saves? What kind of faith makes somebody ready for the coming of Christ? Before we leave this first point, that, that we get ready for Christ's coming by trusting, I think we can look at three uh, identifying marks of genuine faith from this first parable. First, this genuine faith that makes us ready it is repentant faith. It abandons all self-righteousness, all self-sufficiency. Over, over, over and over again in Matthew, Jesus has pointed his finger at the, the insufficient righteousness of the religious leaders. He said, don't trust in your own goodness. Don't assume that you're going to be invited to the wedding party just because you're Jewish or Pharisees. Don't trust in your own religious feelings. Repent of trusting in anything that you do. Repent of trying to be good enough to get into the wedding feast. Instead, trust in Christ. Trust that Jesus is the source of your righteousness. Because Christ was perfectly good, and because Christ paid the price that our sins deserve, he can save people like us. People like me and you who aren't good enough on our own. So true faith is repentant. True faith abandons any attempt to save yourself. Second, we see here in the parable that true faith is enduring. It endures. The preparation of these wise young women shows that they were orienting their day around the coming of the bridegroom. They got ready in advance. True faith exhibits this kind of enduring devotion to Jesus. Another way to say this is that true faith counts the cost of discipleship. You need to know that following Jesus is not the quick way to an easy life. Being a Christian is not a way to gain friends and influence people. Genuine faith sees that Christ is precious. Genuine faith sees that true and lasting joy comes from knowing and worshiping Christ. And so genuine faith is enduring faith. It's not related to our circumstances. It's not saying, well, things are going pretty well and I've been doing some religious stuff, so I'll just keep doing that and hope that things keep going well. Genuine faith isn't a bargain we make with God. We say, God, I'll give you this if you give me that. In the parable, we see both the wise and the foolish. They had to endure the delay in the bridegroom's coming. All All the young women, they all fell asleep. They all had to endure the delay All suffer in this life, but we know that Christ is a good master, and he's using even the difficult things that we go through in our lives to draw us to himself and to make us more like him. So just like the wise young women in the parable, our faith will lead us to endure the night while we wait for the bridegroom to come. But we trust that he will come, and when he comes, we will feast with him. True faith endures. 
And the third mark of genuine faith is that genuine faith must be your own. It re- genuine faith repents, it endures, and it must be your own. So again, kids, if you're raised in a Christian home, you've got godly parents, praise the Lord. But your parents' faith can't save you. They can't believe for you. Your church can't believe for you. Your godly Christian friend, it's great to have them pray for you, but they can't believe for you. I think this is the significance of the wise young women not sharing their oil. Being ready for the bridegroom isn't a matter of simply having enough oil. It was a matter of wholehearted devotion to the bridegroom. And the same goes for faith in Christ. As D.A. Carson put it, the the foresight and preparedness of the wise virgins cannot benefit the foolish virgins. Preparedness can neither be transferred nor shared. What we have to ask ourselves is, am I ready? Am I trusting only in Christ for salvation from sin? So get ready. Get ready for Christ's coming by abandoning every attempt to save yourself and trust in Christ the Savior. He came to save. He came to save sinners like us. So this is what the kingdom of heaven will be like. When Christ comes, those who are ready, those who are trusting in Christ, will enter life with Christ. But the door will be shut on those who have no love for Christ. Those who just want the benefits of Jesus without trusting in him. Folks like that won't be ready when Christ comes. That's the first way we get ready. We get ready by trusting in Christ. Jesus concludes the first parable in verse 13 by repeating something he'd said back in 24. It's a a command to watch. So trusting in Jesus means we never stop following him. We never take a break from serving him. Because he could come at any moment and we don't know when he'll come. So we don't get ready by looking to the stars or the headlines to find out when he's going to come. We watch. We get ready by trusting him. And this means that there's no part of our lives that we fence off from serving him. There's no part of our our life where we say, well, I'm going to stop that for a little while and take a break from following Jesus. We prepare by following him, trusting him, and continuing to trust in him. And so being ready is a life of faith and submission to Jesus. And that brings us to the next way we get ready. We get ready for Christ's coming by obeying Christ. We obey Christ. That's one of the main topics of this next parable. In verse 14, Jesus sort of abruptly jumps into the next parable. He doesn't give us the the kingdom of heaven will be like again. He just says it will be like a man going on a journey. And so we're still talking about what the kingdom of heaven will be like. And let's read this parable, beginning in verse 14 through the end of verse 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has five to ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the first thing that catches our attention here is the return on the investment achieved by these first two servants. That's the return we'd all be happy with, right? And then we notice how much of a contrast here there is between the, the two guys who, who invest and the one guy who just buries the money in the ground. But before we look at those aspects of the parable, I want us to stop and think about how we get ready for Jesus' coming through obedience. Look in verse 16 again at how Jesus describes the first servant's response to the master's commission. It says, he went at once and traded with the five talents. And verse 17 tells us that the, the guy who got two talents, he did the same thing. So also he who had the two talents. So both of these servants immediately went and started working for their master, even though the master, it says, he'd gone away. And he was gone a long time. These servants got ready for the master's coming by obeying him, by working while he was absent. And the same is true for us and Christ. We are servants. We could translate this literally as slaves of Christ. The way to prepare for life with Christ in eternity is by obeying him now, at once. The way to be ready when Christ returns is to right now strive to obey all that he's commanded. And this aspect of obedience, this aspect of being ready through obedience, doesn't conflict with the call to be ready by faith. One way to see this in the parable is the way the master equips the servants for their work. He provides the, the capital, right? A commentator R.T. France reckons that a single talent was worth approximately half a lifetime's wages. Now, even if he's not exactly right, everyone agrees that these were very large amounts of money that he entrusted these folks with. So even the guy who got one talent, he got a ton of money, a, a, a huge seed to start with. So this master had entrusted the servants with this great amount of wealth to do their work. And we can see that in the same way, Christ has entrusted us with abundant treasure with which to work. 
In Ephesians, in chapter 1, it says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's poured out his spirit on us. He's given us his word. He dwells with us. And so our obedience is empowered by God's many graces to us, many gifts to us. And we receive these gifts by faith alone. So being ready through faith goes hand in hand with being ready through obedience. Our obedience is empowered by God's grace. Even though Christ bodily is in heaven at the right hand of God, he's not left us alone. And this is why we can obey. And so the fact that Christ is not physically here with us is not, is not an excuse for laziness or a casual approach to our calling to obey. The fact that Jesus' coming is delayed is not an excuse for indulging ourselves while he's gone or just being cynical that he'll never come back. Christ has equipped us. And in the scriptures, he directs us. So in the commands of God's word, he's telling us what we should be doing. We get ready for Christ's coming by obediently serving him today. Now we can apply this call to obedience in as many different ways as there are commands in the scriptures. So a good question for you to ask is, how am I obeying Christ today? What specifically is Christ calling me to do in his word? What commands of Christ might I be kind of prone to ignore and not want to pay attention to? How, are, how am I struggling to prepare for the Lord's coming in obedience today? Lord willing, in April, we're going to finish our study through the book of Matthew, and we'll finish by looking at the Great Commission. So that's one place we could start with considering our command, or God's command on us to obey. When Christ comes back, will he find that we have been faithful in this work of making disciples? Will he find that we've been eagerly obeying in his absence? You see, Christ has equipped us, right? He's given us all we need. He's saved us. He's made us in, in his image, and he's forming us into the image of Christ. He's poured out his spirit on us, so he's sanctifying us. We've been richly equipped by God. Have we invested our master's treasure? I'm not talking about money, although this includes money. I'm talking about, though, the, the gifts that God has given us in the gospel. Are you preaching the gospel to your unsaved friends? Are you helping your brothers and sisters here in the church to become more like Christ? Parents, do you see your parenting work as gospel work? Is the gospel the focus of our whole lives? So when it comes to this command to, to make disciples of others and to, to baptize them and to teach them all that Christ commanded, are we ready? Are we preparing for Christ's coming through obedience? We get ready through our obedience to the Savior. The subject of investing Christ's gifts in others is a good way to transition to the last way we get ready for Christ's coming. We get ready by risking our lives for Christ's sake. Now in the parable, we're not told anything specific about the work of the two faithful servants. 
We know they traded with the master's money and this trading generated returns, but they didn't give us their business plan, right? We don't know what they were trading in. But we can look at the slothful servant and see a sort of very stark contrast to what the faithful servants did. The slothful servant buried his money in the ground. Now to this, us this sounds ridiculous. We, you know, we make jokes about stuffing money in the mattress. Uh, every now and then I heard a, a story about someone who had stored money in an old non-working furnace and then the money got burned up when someone made the furnace work again. That's a bad idea. Um, but this, this guy burying the treasure in the ground was a, a way of keeping things safe in, in olden days, in the ancient world. So Jesus more than once tells a parable about buried treasure, right? A good way to keep it, in, keep it safe was bury it where no one else knows it's there. We get a sense of the, master, or the servant's slothfulness in the way the master responds to him. He says that uh, when, when he finds out that he just buried the money, he says, you should have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Now that sounds like, well, that's kind of a non-risky investment to us, right? We understand if we put our money in a savings account, it'll get a tiny bit of interest at least, right? But we're kind of importing our ideas of banking into the ancient world. Banking in these days was still a risky venture. R.T. France explained some background here. He said, banking as we know it had hardly begun in the Roman world of the first century. Lending of money at interest by individuals had long been common, but the practice of depositing money with the expectation of regular growth was not widespread. The bankers who might have accepted such a loan would not be regulated commercial firms, but individual entrepreneurs, moneylenders, or money changers whose honesty and competence might be questionable. In the circumstances, to bury money in the ground was probably the better way to keep it safe. The course of action demanded by the master may have been no less risky than the commercial ventures attempted by the other two servants. I say all that to show us that for the master in the parable, the work he expects from his servants is inherently risky work. It requires exposing the treasure that he's given them to potential losses. And by choosing the risk-free option of burying the treasure, the slothful servant essentially decided not to work for the master. He didn't want to worry himself with the day-to-day -day work of trading and trying to grow this money. By burying the treasure, he gave himself a very long vacation. He could just do whatever he wanted. The treasure was in the ground. He could live his life. And so there's no ambiguity about the master's condemnation of this guy. In verse 30, he calls for what he has to be taken away from him and given to the guy who has ten talents. And then he calls for the guy to be cast into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, occurs other times in the Gospels. And in Matthew chapter 8, we find a similar note of judgment to what we find at the end of this parable. And, but that time it's spoken about the, what Jesus calls the sons of the kingdom. This is just after something I referenced earlier, that Roman centurion had expressed his confidence in, 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 uh, in Jesus' power. And so Jesus commended him. He says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith as this. I tell you, many will come from east and west to rec and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place 
there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This helps us understand a bit about how this parable applied to the context where Jesus first spoke it. The leaders of Israel, the, the sons of the kingdom, they'd been entrusted by a great gift of God. They'd been given the law and the prophets and the temple. And these things were all ways of knowing God and his grace. By keeping the law and by attending to the temple worship and the sacrifices, Israel was supposed to be a light of holiness to the nations. But the leaders of Israel, they didn't work according to God's agenda. They weren't seeking to magnify the grace of God. As a matter of fact, they had closed off the court of the Gentiles to the Gentiles by turning it into a place for changing money. Right? Jesus has already condemned them a few chapters before of turning his house into a den of thieves. So these religious leaders, they had no interest in humbling themselves and following Jesus. They were light years away from what Christ has called his disciples to do, which was to, to give their lives, to lose their lives for Christ's sake. In essence, they had buried the treasure God had entrusted them. And now Jesus has come to settle accounts, and their plan is to bury him. At the final coming of the kingdom of heaven, these kinds of unbelieving, unrepentant servants, these are the ones who will be cast into outer darkness. But who are the faithful servants of the parable? What does it mean to be ready for Christ's coming by risking? I mean, we don't usually associate risk with readiness, right? But there's a kind of risk that we need to see is essential to following Jesus. We see this in Matthew 30, 10, 38, and 39. Jesus taught, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In a similar vein, in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 27, just after Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The faithful servants are the ones who are willing to risk their lives, to give their lives for Christ's sake. Now, maybe it's not quite right to call it a risk, because like the servants in the parable, the faithful don't lose anything in their work for the master. They gain abundantly. They gain life by giving their lives. Jesus is the one who sets the example for this kind of gospel risk and gospel reward. He came to give his life. And what does he get in return for doing so? He ransoms many and he's exalted. Jesus was lifted up on the cross and then ultimately he was lifted up to God's right hand. And this is the pattern for faithful service in heaven's kingdom. Everything God has entrusted to us, our very lives, we are to give for Christ's sake. We don't hide our light under a bushel. We let it shine. 
We set it on the hilltop. And when we minister in Christ's power, when we minister entrusted with Christ's gifts, we should expect return. Again, we're not talking about money. We're talking about the, the gospel riches we've been given. We can minister and expect return because Christ's word always accomplishes what God intends for it to do. Listen to this great word about the word in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish what I, that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This whole section of Isaiah is about the, the word of comfort, the gospel word that's coming for God's people. It will accomplish the work that God intends for it. Now, we can't control all that God's word will accomplish. We can't control any of it. Sometimes God's word will thunder down in torrents of judgment to those who reject it. But we can expect it to do its work. We can expect it to be fruitful, that we will reap a harvest by planting God's word. One of the questions then we need to nail down is what exactly these talents are in the parable. I've been kind of circling around to it, but we need to address it because we have this pesky word talents in our English language that means something like our, our gifts and skills. And I think that just confuses the issue here. So we, we shouldn't equate Jesus's talents as in a half of lifetime's income to our gifts, our skills and abilities, our English word talents. We need to see these as the spiritual blessings of the gospel. So Jesus is using these vast amounts of money as word pictures of the spiritual blessings of the gospel. God has blessed us with things like forgiveness and reconciliation with God and adoption into God's family. Again, he's poured out the greatest gift, which is the Holy Spirit on our lives. The Holy Spirit is coming, has, has, has come to make his home with us. He dwells in us. And further, then God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. And he's given to each individual Christian spiritual gifts that are to be used in building up the church. These are the abundant blessings that the talents of the parable picture for us. So if we want to be like these servants who are declared good and faithful, if we want to be ready for Christ when he comes then our calling is to lay down our lives for Christ's sake and the sake of the gospel. This is why Christ has abundantly equipped us in the way that he has. This is why here in our church we so emphasize commitment to our church as essential to what it means to be a Christian. Uh, again, not every Christian has to be committed to our church, but if you're a member of this church, this is where the, the priority should, should be for your Christian discipleship. And that's because the local church is God's program for evangelism and discipleship. This is it. God's church gathered for worship. God's church loving one another. This is God's program for saving the lost and for growing his people into his image. We should orient our lives around loving one another, helping one another grow in Christ, and preaching the gospel. Mark Dever defines discipling as deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. 
We should give our lives. We should risk our lives to do that kind of spiritual good to each other. And as we do that kind of spiritual good to each other, as as we all help each other grow in Christ, our evangelism radiates out from that. If we're the kind of church where everyone is committed to helping each other grow to be more like Jesus, we become a brighter light together and we're built up to share this great hope we have with our lost neighbors and friends and family members and with our, our children. We're encouraged by the community to be the light we're supposed to be. And so as Christ has richly blessed and equipped us, we give all that we have for these goals. And we trust that as we do that, Christ is going to bring fruit from this work. By God's grace, we will see this become the norm for us, that we'll all be involved in this kind of disciple-making work. That's one of our big goals as elders, that it's just the normal lifeblood of our church for us to help each other grow and to be sharing the gospel. We want it to be strange when there's people who are members who aren't involved in that work. And we, we know we all have room to grow in this way. So take a look at how God has blessed you spiritually. What has he given you in the gospel? How has he equipped you to serve and bless others? Hasn't he been a gracious master with you? And now, how are you taking all of that treasure that your master has entrusted you with? And how are you serving others with it? When Christ, our master, comes to settle accounts with us, what will his verdict be? Are we like those two faithful servants who've at once gone to work and given the master's treasure to those who can make returns on it? Or are other things crowding out God's work? Have we decided to put God's work on the shelf so that we can do our own thing? Brothers and sisters, let us work together to do this work, to make disciples. God knows You have different abilities than me, and I have different abilities than you. He's given some gifts to be teachers and pastors and all sorts of gifts to the church, right? Some have the gift of encouragement. Some have the gift of helping and administration. Everyone has been gifted differently. Whatever you've been given, give. Whatever you've been given, pour out for the sake of the gospel. Are you giving your life in this way? to sow the gospel into others' lives. For parents, our work begins in our homes and and sowing the gospel into our children's lives, but it doesn't stop there, and, and we have to acknowledge it changes in different parts of our lives. Wherever we are, though, we should be striving to be faithful to our Lord. And know that he is coming back to settle accounts. We see the seriousness of the calling, don't we? The wicked servant says that he knows the master to be a hard man, reaping where he had not sown and gathering where he scattered no seed. It's not exactly clear how we're supposed to take that. We can just say, though, that a wicked servant in a parable is not the most trustworthy theologian. But the master points out and uses his words against him. If you really thought that, then why weren't you all the more working with what I gave you? You see, the wicked servant sees the master as kind of a an exploiter. And he blames this view of the master on his inaction. But that's not the right view of our master. That's a wrong kind of fear of the Lord. 
the right kind of fear of the Lord knows that the Lord has high expectations, but also knows that the Lord has abundantly gifted us. A right kind of fear of the Lord is aware of all the wonderful gifts he's given us in the gospel. So we know him to be God Almighty who's made the light to shine in the darkness. And he's performed that very act in our own hearts. We work in the fear of the Lord because we know there's no excuse for laziness that we can make to such a gracious master that we have. There's no good reason to keep quiet about the gospel or to hold anything back from God. And so to work in the fear of the Lord is to work in the joy of the Lord. We give all that we have because Christ gave himself for us. We give all that we have looking forward to that day when he will say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Just like Jesus, who is the pioneer of our faith, we endure shame today for the hope that's set before us. So are you ready? Are you ready for the coming of the Lord? Get ready. Trust in the Lord. Obey the Lord. And risk all you have for his sake and the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great gifts that you've blessed us with. We ask for your help to be more aware and more thankful to live more in light of your grace. We pray that this would help us to endure. We pray for your help to pour gospel seed into the lives of others around us, whether they're brothers and sisters that we're sitting with here today or friends and neighbors who don't yet know the gospel. Lord, help us at once to be obedient and about your work and help us to do so with confidence and joy looking forward to the, the fruit that will come and looking forward to your words of approval. Help us, Father, to encourage each other, to build one another up, to walk arm in arm towards that day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.